And with me today in the studio are, of course, friends Lowen Connie Nagel and David P. Curtis. And if you wonder why I keep calling him David P. Curtis, it's to differentiate between David and David J. Curtis, who is an English artist, and the two of them don't paint anything alike, but they're often confused because their names are the same. However, having got that out of the way, let's move right along here. Uh, you'll have to forgive me if I'm a bit foggy-brained here. I'm just on my first cup of coffee, uh, and I'm still trying to put the words together. So when we think of colour, let's jump right into this, because I know David and Connie have lots to talk about, um, and, and I don't. So I'll just mention, while I can, um, that... Oh no, we're going to cut that bit out because I've lost my train of thought. <laughs> so we'll start with the idea of colour. And I said to David, OK, I don't know much about this subject. Where do I start? And he said, well, you should look up Isaac Newton because it's his history of colour theory that began it all. So I duly looked up history of colour theory and I came up with um, a, a piece, a website that said, in 1666, English scientist Sir Isaac Newton discovered that when pure white light passes through a prism, it separates into all of the visible colours. And then there's a fancy little uh, diagram showing a prism and the refraction of light through a prism. And he says, white equals the presence of all colours, whereas black is the absence of all colours. So that's it for me, and I'm going to turn it over to David and Connie in the hope that they can explain colour a little bit easier, because I think colour must be so personal. How do, you, how do you go about teaching somebody, a student out of doors, how to see colour in, in front of them? Connie, uh, I know you've been uh, teaching a lot recently. Uh, what would you like to add? Well, um, I think it's good to start with Newton's theory of colour, uh, uh, because... That is color in light. So we want to differentiate the prism or the uh, color combining that occurs in light rays versus color in pigments. And we, we you know, the podcast is about oil painting. And when we combine uh, light rays, they turn to white. When you combine pigments, they turn to black. So, um, and, and that's a, that's probably a real important um, distinction between yeah. the two because as artists, we are working with pigments all the time. So what we want to do is look at uh, the color through this, this means of, of uh, knowing that it is actually, if we combined all the colors together, we get a nice pure or beautiful black. It might be a cool black, it might be a warm black, but also that is all in, um, in the color theories. Color theories started in 1900, at least an explosion of them in, in America uh, between 1900 and 1950. We've talked about um, how these color theories uh, help us to understand uh, bringing complements like red and green uh, combined together would make a nice neutral gray. And that neutral gray becomes a real important aspect uh, to, to, color, to color harmony and uh, a final painting composition. Yeah, 
It's, um, I know you're talking about, you know, creating these neutral greys and things. I remember when I was first starting out painting with David's dad, Roger Curtis, uh, and he would <clears throat> talk about the colour pools and how you could tip it this way by adding this colour, and what, so you add the complements to make the grey, and then you can tip it by adding different things. And of course, I was busy adding this colour and that colour, but obviously adding um, a touch of red to the colour pool has to be the right red. It's no good adding a sort of a crimson colour if you want it to go uh, a brighter. So you have to know all about the split complements and things. And I know, David, that you probably got a great grounding in, in this idea when you were a little toddler at your father's knee while he worked mm -hmm. at the easel. <laughs> uh, yes, he was, he was a good instructor. And he used to, with my two brothers and I, uh, if we were to, had a... He was... He, organized a lot of exhibitions and uh, so he had two three sons who could lug the paintings about for him so I don't know whether it was one before the other or the other before the other um, so we would go um, along on long trips so my father would ask us uh, either memory questions or color what's the complement of cerulean blue he would say, he wouldn't ask what's the common of blue-green, mm -hmm. he would say cerulean blue, so that you've got to understand the practicality of color. I think that's what Connie is saying, that it's practical. The theory of light is the inspiration for us, I think, um, to carry this out in the best we can, humbled as we are with looking at light and taking our pigments. But that sort of all goes into what we've been talking about with the... Uh, aesthetics and beauty and all those things of art, we are inspired by these things. So I think when Newton came along with his theory of light and color and prism, uh, I, think it, I think it really just helped the artist to add something to their repertoire. I think sometimes we can get very confused with color. So I think it's a little bit like what you, Judy, said as an example of the color pools. Um, in how we work at things. And I think, well, let's take it more basic. Um, you decide you want to change the color of your kitchen, but you're not sure what you'd like. Rather than just jumping right into saying beige, you know, and being sick of beige after a year, you decide that you're going to go out and get 20 color chips and pin them up on the wall and find out which one do you like the best. And, and so color is is that personal quality, isn't it? It's it's what you like, what applies to you. Um, and, I, and I think so when you're mixing your colors as an artist, I think sometimes there is a little intuitiveness in it. And um, I think we say, yeah, it's too green to be represent the green of grass. So I'm going to add a little uh, blue to it or a little yellow to it uh, in order to change it a little bit more. Um, so I, I think color has that aspect for a painter that he's he's it's secondary almost. So he's he's just sort of organizing his colors and his palette to represent what he thinks he sees. Um, but I think um, I think Connie, with all these new color theories that uh, are not new but old color theories, I think that that's pretty pretty much an important part of the future of understanding how to compose because I think color has a lot to do with composition and design 
much more so, much much like uh, and looking at an abstract painting where you say, but there's nothing here. Well, there's plenty there. There's color, there's shape. And that's all we see is color and shape. And if we can put those together in a pleasing way, that's maybe what a painting is. So I would also interject about um, the psychological research that has been done on colors and, and the power of color. You know, David was talking about taking a swatch of color and putting it, you know, on your on your kitchen wall and saying, well, do we want to paint this kitchen yellow or do we want to paint it a soft green? Uh, all these things are are um, emotionally charged. Uh, each color has, uh, if you if you look at green, green is, is something that would be good for an office, uh, art studio. It's about creative thinking. Red, you know, seeing a person in front of a red background, the person looks like they're attractive. Uh, all these things have a a certain potency. Sometimes light red is associated, you know, we always think of Valentine's Day, and uh, light red has to do with passion, love, uh, maybe sexuality. Uh, violet is, uh, a you know, a grayish violet is connected with sophistication a lot of times. So all of these things uh, play a part in a person's uh, personal sensibility. I always think about color as a, almost like a fingerprint. Like each one of us have a color palette that is as in individual as our as our fingerprint is. And <clears throat> the other thing I might say is that people are more comfortable in spaces with color than than those without color. Yeah. It was interesting you were mentioning about a, a red background would you know possibly make or give you the feeling that you know the sitter is this you know, a very beautiful person. Um, it reminds me of uh, a portrait done by Gertrude Fisk. It's called Bettina, and it's currently on exhibition at the Portsmouth Historical Society. Uh, and it's against this sort of bright red uh, with gold background, it, and it is it's a beautiful portrait. Uh, and I, you know, she's got this dark hair, dark hat on. Uh, but one of the things I notice about Gertrude Fisk's work um, is that it's it's very, it's the colour is striking. I mean, it's the first thing you notice mm. as you walk into a room full of her paintings is the colour. And she had seven years of, of training at the museum school. She's the only person I know who's ever completed the entire seven years. Mm. Um, but after she left there, uh, she went to study with Charles Woodbury in a gun quit. Uh, and, of course, he was much looser than the Boston School. And you can see some of her beach pieces, again, which are on display at the Historical Society exhibition. Uh, and the, the colour is just, it, it's just voluptuous. It's just brilliant. Uh, and the way that she's able to, to use colour to make the forms of things... Uh, so for a student who's going, who's going to just go out to paint a landscape, how, how important is a good colour palette for them? I mean, I know that you have to juxtapose, I remember Roger talking about, you have to juxtapose this colour next to that colour to make vibrations. Um, and is colour vibration important or is too much vibration too 
too much. <laughs> exactly. I think you brought up the right word, juxtaposition. It's the putting two things side by side, two colors side by side, and that will create a reaction to you, the artist, first, and then the viewer. Um, I think juxtaposition tests all your colors as a painter, too. Is that sky that blue? Is that distant mountain that purple uh, next to each other? So it's these adjustments. Um, if, if I was to simplify color, uh, because I know Connie can go into it a little more depthier than I can, uh, I would just basically say I start with a very simple color wheel idea, uh, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, purple. And those could be divided into the primary and secondary colors, obviously. And then you have, um, then you have uh, uh, the analogous colors, which are side by side. So, for instance, if I was doing a landscape, I could know that if this was an uh, autumn scene and these were orange trees, I could say, well, an analogous color to orange would be yellow. They'll get along with each other. Um, whereas if I wanted to complement, or as you said, create vibration, uh, compliments can also create vibration. So if you put orange and then put a blue note next to that orange, it could make the orange jump a bit or make the blue vibrate. Um, so I think, that, I think that's an important use of color is that idea of vibration. Um, and then last, I think one of the things that some, I find as a teacher missing with a lot of students is, is the idea of the chroma, the intensity of a particular color. How bright and how dull is that color? Uh, I use the example of a figure standing in a green field and they have a red dress on. And so for the student to make that dress turn and look like it's in sunlight, if they added white to that, it's going to make pink. Mm -hmm. So it's no longer the red dress that the model has on. So they have to figure out a way of taking that particular red and if they find the red, the true red of the color, let's say that's the half tone of the color, I think if they add other reds and oranges, analogous colors to that, they might be able to get the effect that the, the red color then is in sunlight. And then in shadow, it's not just black, it's not just the absence of red, there's still some red left in that shadow. They have to go down that chroma scale to find that red that's darker. And I think the intensity of a color can play a major part in, in a painter's, out of doors painters. A lot of painters don't see, don't want to use the intensity. They're much more caught up in value. And values are very important. One of the things I, I want to suggest is that it's very important to realize that all these principles that we've been talking about, and specifically the practical ones such as color, and if we talk about perspective or design, these are very, these are principles that can be used like a, like a tool. So you have a toolbox as a painter, and in it the hammer, the, uh, the, the, uh, the file, uh, the saw, or whatever you would need. So it's not just about rendering the accurate value of what you see. Sometimes it's just the value that will get along with all your other values in your painting. Mm -hmm. And I think that's true of color. But I think color um, can also play an important part in design. Yeah. Um, I was also going to say that um, it's true that saturation and brightness, um, you were saying intensity of the color. I, I think about it in terms of true saturation of the color has, um, has an emotional effect on the person. And psychologically, 
You may have something that is more like a blue that is more saturated, maybe less bright, such as a sapphire blue, and that brings out an energizing effect when you look at it. Um, there, um, I was thinking, too, about the color theories that I've been studying over the past couple of months, and um, I, I believe that all of us as painters could, uh, could look into color theories. You know, I, I was studying uh, the, the color theories because uh, David, who's, who has been my teacher for a long time, uh, was saying that I was a Murata painter. And I kept going, <laughs> what's a Murata painter? It's either unusual, unconventional, maybe it's a rock star band. You know, I, I was like, who's Murata anyway, you know? And, um, and so I looked him up. I Googled him. I see his name is Hardesty Murata. He was, he was uh, at, around the turn of the century. He, he was actually a painter, but he was also an oil painter, um, he had an oil painting company, so he tubed oil paints, and he did it in a certain way in which he created what were called neutral grays. But what that did is that allowed me to move from um, from reading about Murata to reading about Charles Allen Winter, uh, this guy Denman Ross, who were these were all color theorists. Uh, in the early part of the 20th century, and um, and uh, the synchromatics. Now that sounds like a rock star <laughs> band of of the 21st century, you know, and uh, and they were supposed to be combining both color and music. Again, that is an area we've talked about it before in a podcast, uh, not in detail, but um, color and music are. Are ways in which we can we we certainly see the rhythmic process of of creating an oil painting composition um, and a melody a melody could arise from an oil painting composition, um, but I'm still uh, at this juncture still very unclear what the connection is between color and music, but I can say that um, involving myself in these in the, the process of discovering neutral grays and all that kind of stuff has helped me to understand um, what creates a um, composition and how you can turn form with color. Because you create this neutral gray and then you have a punch of pure color and um, everything starts shifting. In, in the composition. Yeah, I think it was Hans Hoffman who said, it is not the form that dictates the color, but the color that brings out the form. Hmm. Um, so as, as artists and teachers, do you suggest that students, do they have to bring out a box full of, you know, golden greens and sap greens and uh, all these different colors on the off chance that they might need a smidge of one or other? Or do you think they should have a limited palette and try and and work through the color by developing their own colors from from those primaries. Well, I, I uh, my teacher uh, Ives Gamble uh, used what he called the. There were two palettes. The one was a Titian palette, and one I don't know how much of the colors that we use today had anything to do with uh, Titian, but uh, and also Hawthorne's palette, Charles Hawthorne of the Cape. And his palette was one we used out of doors. 
uh, two reds, two yellows, two blues, and a green, because green was the common thing in But I really feel that after I left my teacher, um, I experimented with all kinds of colors. You know, we were just told to use Viridian, mm-hmm. which is a horrible bottle green color. And the greens are very difficult to use uh, in pigments. Uh, so I tried uh, permanent green, you know, gr- green light, green dark, uh, phthalo green. There were so many different greens that you can try. So I think that's, I think if, as a young painter, you want to experiment with as many different things as you can. Why not? Color is very personal. Some people can't can't put red on in a painting because, woo, they just, uh, well, um, I don't know, maybe they're like bulls and they, they get all charged up if they see red. I don't know, but um, who knows? Color is, color is a personal quality. But as painters, we have to get over these prejudices and go out and try to try to be inspired by what nature's showing us as a color. I think one of the biggest helps is for understanding color. This is, as a dad, I had to go to the kindergarten class and I recognized right away that the teacher did not have a color wheel in her, in, in, on the wall. And it might have cost $5 or something to put up a color wheel. But I always thought color wheels, because I had a color wheel when I was a kid, was fascinating to stare off into space and study the colors rather than learning my English. <laughs> um, but so I, I started the kids off and I had to think, figure out how am I going to teach five-year-olds how to, how to see color? And I really... Since the idea of what Connie's talking about is the basic idea of feeling. And some colors feel warm and some colors feel cool. Uh, if you're cool, you're probably thinking of the, the blues and the purples and the greens. And if you're warm, you're probably thinking of red, orange, and yellow. And it did work. I mean, as I asked the, the kids to name some warm colors and name some cold, hot, I used hot and cold, they came across with the understanding because you can feel them. So if you're out of doors or painting for a still life or just painting in your own head and you want a cool color, realize what, what feels cool to you. And there are cool reds and warm reds. You know, there's cool yellows and warm yellows. So every color has this quality of warm and cool. Um, again, children, um, I was demonstrating for the, uh, the children, and I didn't know whether they were paying, they were so quiet, I didn't know they, they were paying attention to what I was demonstrating. So I decided to, I was doing a little white house with shadows across it. I decided to make the door red and make it a false red. It wouldn't be harmonious with the other colors. So I made it too bright, and then I asked the kids, what's wrong with this painting? And a little boy raised his hand and a little delicate voice said, Mr. Curtis, your temperature is wrong. <laughs> and I learned, I mean, that's when I learned something, to use the word temperature mm-hmm. to meaning the, the degree in which that door was wrong. And he explained that it was too red. And I had to tone the red down so it would get along with all the other colors. So he felt that. Mm-hmm. I don't think he knew that. I think he felt that. Mm-hmm. So color is maybe this most basic of all elements um, that we don't pay as much attention to that are creating all these subtle thoughts and feelings for for us as painters and the viewers. I would, you know, um, David was talking about using all sorts of colors, and I think that's really wonderful in the beginning. I think if you're a serious artist, you might challenge yourself 
to use red, yellow, blue, the primaries, and black and white. I don't use really black on my palette, but um, I do, I have um, limited my palette to red, yellow, mm -hmm. blue, and white. And, um, and I've done it in a way that, uh, and, and let's say, I, I don't want to say it's so limited that it, it's like two blues, two yellows, two, two reds, you know, and, and a white. And, um, and it, has, it has allowed me to become confident in my mixing of colors. And um, I think I, I feel certain that I can mix with those primaries a variety of different colors that allow me to move uh, in the spectrum of warm and cool. And I think as, as artists, we need to learn how to create a warm green, a cool green, um, you know, uh, um, uh, for our skies, for our land, whatever. Um, I was also going to say something about that I think color appears different in different settings. You know, a red appears opaque, you know, if we were painting an apple in a still life, or it seems filmy and atmospheric if it was a sunset. You know, or um, it's luminous. You know, let's say you're trying to do a traffic light and you have this bright red. So these reds might be the same type of red, but they shift in in their in their when we view them because of the nature of what we're trying to express. Yeah. So it obviously color is very personal. Uh, and you were talking about how red appears in different settings, which I'd never really thought about. Um, and is that something that you can learn or do you, do you have to be able to see it? Can you train yourself to see some of these things? I mean, I guess I'm so ob unobservant. I like red in, a, in anything. Um, I look out of my window, I have a, a red Adirondack chair, I have red azaleas outside the window, red geraniums. I, I like that colour, but I don't... I guess I, think, I don't notice the subtleties. I think it is a matter of um, trying to create a certain effect. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and um, that would be... Uh, and also, it's not just um, the kind of... Like, let's say you're trying to create a luminous effect. You know, you might reduce the area that is really the pure chroma to a small area. You might... Um, uh, also allow something to to have um, uh, to have it bounce all over the canvas. Um, you know, I, there are probably all sorts of rules to uh, to create luminosity. Mm -hmm. uh, but when you're talking about red, too, red is um, something that, uh, like David was saying, if you put white into it, you've got a pink. You don't mm -hmm. even have a red. So, so when people are thinking about brightness. They, they, I think, slowly become confident that you put maybe a touch of yellow in there. You might put a touch of orange. Uh, these sorts of things uh, allow you to, to create um, a bright red. Mm -hmm. you know, yeah. so. I always remember David, when he took over my art education after we got married, and I always remember him coming out with the expression... Uh, white makes light, but color makes bright, which 
um, I thought was, wow, this guy really knows his stuff. <laughs> well, I, I, at the time, I had two students, and one was very proud of the fact that they didn't have to spend much money on this particular color, and I noticed that the color was called a hue, a yellow hue. And I said to him, I said, I think hue is an indication that it means weak. Uh, the definition of hue would just mean a color, the, the, the idea tint. of what color is, or color tint, a particular shade of color. Um, and I think that's what Murata was doing with his creation of colors, tubes of color. But I, I, I think when the, if you're out, and there's two ways of understanding color, and I think uh, outdoors matching the color for color. So we're out on a sunny day, obviously it's I'm matching this color to represent sky, and this color for the tree, and this color for this, and this color for that. Uh, or still life painter might be matching the colors, or a portrait artist he then again has to find the right flesh tone um, to match the, the the color of the sitter, you know. And I've known portrait artists who the sitter can't sit for very long, so what they do is they take color notes of the individual sitting there. They'll actually go up and match uh, the color of their flesh note of the cheek and the nose of, of the neck and, and all those different colors because they have to do the painting from a photograph. So they might use a black and white photograph, but have all their color notes assembled. And I think Connie and I created a memory card when we taught me a memory lesson. And the memory card was used so that they could match the right. We had a sort of a series of values, and they had to match the right value for the right color. Mm -hmm. And I learned a lot in us experimenting with that color memory card. Uh, I learned a lot as to how similar the values were and had to change the memory card because I had too many variable values. And actually there's, there's very few values uh, in nature that are different, but the color can make, as Connie said, movement. It changes things. So a light green has the illusion of maybe coming forward or going back or representing sunlight or whatever it is, whereas a cool green seems to disappear and go away. So we can do a lot with this. Mm -hmm. um, also, I do believe that um, the idea of, uh, we were talking about neutrals, of using neutrals in relation to brilliant you know, hues of strong chromatic colors and putting neutrals next to them to make the colors even stronger, you know. Um, when I stand next to you two girls, I mean, you two girls look beautiful because I'm so ugly, right? No. No. Oh, okay. so, anyway, it's sort of like that. The color analogy is, is that, um, that if you put a weak gray next to a orange, then the orange is going to stand out. And as Connie pointed out, it's a brilliant way of, of composing. If we maybe we should be starting not with the matching of color from nature, but maybe we should be putting down color spots for a better design first and then modifying them as we go along. But I like this idea of putting grays and neutrals next to chromatic colors um, in order to move the eye. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I'd love to continue this discussion, uh, but we are getting close to uh, finishing. So, uh, Connie, do you have any last words you'd like to offer? I know you were at the MFA yesterday. Would you? Uh, is there anything there that you'd like to tell wow. us about? That was terrific. Um, and I would just say, um, 
that um, if, if you have any time and uh, possibility to go to the MFA, um, it's so worth it, you know, as a painter. I mean, I went in to see the Klimt show, uh, which is Klimt drawings, um, but then also we went up to the American Wing where uh, Sargent has some of his fabulous pieces. Um, then, and then also we went over into Monet's um, work and Gauguin. Um, so um, I, um, I was, uh, I don't have anything else to say. <laughs> well, I, I remember what you said about the Gauguin. I thought it was interesting because his use of color, you thought helped emote the whole quality of his primitive Tahitian scene in, I think, Stages of Life, was it? It is Stages of Life. And um, I think it was a brilliant, I never thought of it. And so next time I go back, I'm going to really look at the Gauguin because you thought the use of color was sort of primitive, almost. So yeah. raw, almost. Yeah. And bright. And maybe we always just took it to being, that's what Tahiti looks like. But you were saying that it sort of helped to evolve um, yeah. uh, the, um, the, the whole meaning behind what he was trying to do in his painting. I thought that was interesting. I, yeah. Next time I go back, I'm going to have to really, really observe mm -hmm. that. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, if, uh, if anybody's interested in artists who use a lot of color, don't forget to check out the Harold Rotenberg and American Impressionist show down at the Cape Ann Museum in Gloucester. Uh, it's on through... I think it's June 16th, and I shall be there on June the 9th, Saturday, 3 p.m., to give a talk about Harold Rotenberg and, strangely enough, his use of colour in his artwork. So, obviously, I've got a lot of uh, homework to do, but uh, uh, this has given me a, a, a great start. So, thank you, Connie. Thank you, David. I know you're anxious to get out painting for yourselves today. So, have a great day, and thank you for listening, and hope you'll tune in next week. So until then, goodbye.